in chapter 11, we looked at the men and women who, who tapped into the blessing of faith in God. How many know that there's blessings when we have faith in the Lord? When we walk in obedience, uh, there is blessing, and uh, they believe God was who he said he was and that he does what he says he will do. You know what that is? That's faith. It takes faith to walk that out. It's one thing to read, oh, I know God is this way, but it's another thing to walk that out and trust him with your life, right? And so it, uh, you know, so we talked about faith. And here in chapter 12, we'll talk about the wisdom of hope. Everyone say hope. Hope is what? The expectation of what? Coming good. Uh, how many know I put, we put our hope in Jesus Christ? Amen. Things may, you may be having a bad week, but guess what? There's hope. That something good is going to happen, all right? Uh, I love that. And uh, and I don't care how dark or how bad it seems, um, good will come. And that is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And in chapter 13, which we're not going to talk about tonight, but we'll get to another time, uh, we, we talk about the way of love. And so here at the end of Hebrews, this is amazing to me, we talk about faith, hope, love, the three things that... Uh, I think are beautiful, and you've heard me talk about those. If you're going to build a church, you ought to build them on faith, hope, and love. And uh, Paul is a a particular one who writes about those quite a bit, so I think that that kind of helps another reason that kind of alludes that the writer of Hebrews could have been Paul. We don't know 100%, um, but there are some little cues and things. So if you need a subheading on this, uh, uh, this study of chapter 12 right here at the beginning. How many know that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith? So there's a, there's a little bit of a subheading for you if you need to put that in there. Verse 1 in chapter 12, it says this, Therefore, all right, stop. All right, in the Bible, when we see the word therefore, we stop and we ask the question, come on, some of you who've been in here, what is it? Okay. It's preluding to something that happened in chapter 11. And, and so we in chapter 11, talking about all these people in, in faith, and then all of a sudden we come into chapter 12. Therefore, all right, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So, um, you know, we live here in Indiana, and we know a few things about races, right? Uh, what, what happens on Memorial Day weekend in Indianapolis? Come on. The Indianapolis 500 every year, right? And thousands of people come in from across the world to go up there to see that race. And, and you might go up there. Has anyone ever been to that? All right. I, I've only been to the track, so I don't, I have no, uh, but that's amazing. And so, uh, but, but we're in this spiritual journey, and uh, it, it's almost like a race. And, uh, and, and the writer here of this book is telling us that there's this cloud of witnesses that are, that are uh, out there spectating, and they're rooting us on. They're cheering us on. How many like a good cheerleader, right? Uh, somebody that, that is like, come on, you got this, you got this. My wife is one of my, one of my biggest cheerleaders, and, and I'm, you know, sometimes I'll get down on myself, and, and she'll be like, no, you're a man of God. Yeah, I'm a man of God. You're the best husband. Yeah, I'm the best husband. How many know you need a cheerleader in your life, right? And, and uh and they're the and so it's talking about these spectators and these people uh, out of chapter eleven, the heroes of the faith. And so we see that this shortly uh, in Jesus' ministry before he is about to go to the cross. Um, 
on the mountain of transfiguration, and there he was visited by by two uh, Old Testament figures, right? Who are they? Moses and, and who? All right, a few of you read your Bible. Moses and Elijah, and and while he's there, up there with the, you know, uh, Peter, James, and John, he's up there, and then, you know, they're just amazed because, whew, that's Moses, uh, that's Elijah, this is crazy, and Peter, he doesn't even know what to do with himself, he just starts talking, because he's a nervous guy, when things happen, he just starts talking, he's like, we need to build an altar right here, right now, and um, and I believe, honestly, they uh, that God the Father knew what Jesus was about to go and do, and I believe that they're there just kind of helping him, hey, you've got this, we're, we're cheering you on, and, and same thing for us, I, I believe there's a cloud of witnesses that are cheering you on uh, in your walk with God when you when you are trying to, to, you know, you're being tempted by something, and they're going, come on, you can do this, you can beat this temptation, the Lord's going to help you, and they're cheering you on, and you've got this, all right, so uh, so, too, it's my conviction that you and I are being cheered on by, by people in heaven or those, those figures in heaven. First Thessalonians 4.17 tells us that we will be caught up in the clouds, right? Uh, could it be, uh, the, I, I don't think it's necessary, necessarily cumulus nimbus clouds, all right, I, or stratus. I always like stratus because that was way easier to say growing up in science class, like I know all the big clouds. But I don't think it's so much clouds like that. But could it be the cloud of witnesses that we're going to be raised up to in heaven? I, I think that's a beautiful thing, a beautiful picture. Next time, I'll give you a little little thing here. Next time you're being welled on, you feel like, man, life's terrible. Just remember, Jonah's up there cheering you on, right? Um, next time you feel the heat and fire of life, remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are sitting there cheering you on and saying, hey, take, have courage, stand strong, you've got this. If God will do it for us, he'll do it for you. God will deliver. So, you know, or maybe this is you. Maybe next time you're up against a giant in your life, you feel like you've got a huge situation. Come on. How many know that, that David could be there going, come on, you've got this. You, you have courage, you know, stand strong. And so... How many know that God will deliver? So it says this, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely. You know, I, uh, that's a good prayer to pray over that stubborn fat in your middle. <laughs> Lord, it says lay aside, right? Okay. Uh, no, that's not what it's talking about. Um, you know, and, and it's interesting because I, I like that the Bible puts weight in there and not just sin because, you know, not everything that we carry is necessarily sin, but it's not necessarily beneficial to our walk with God. Right? Right? Um, how many know that life sometimes weighs us down? Sometimes, man, we're in heavy burdens, and uh, maybe maybe you're here. You, you have a financial issue. How many know that that can weigh you down? Right, you feel like there's no hope because you you don't have enough money and um, it's a different situation, or maybe you lost a loved one. Anybody ever lost a loved one? Man, that can make you feel hopeless and so burdened and so lost. And or maybe you've been uh, a rejection, and maybe you thought you're gonna get a, a a job, and and they said, Nah, we don't want you. We want someone better. You feel rejected and and lost, or maybe your spouse has rejected you. And and those things are not sins, but hey, they can weigh us down, right? And we carry those things. Uh, you know, I, I heard this story. There was a woman who dreamed that the rapture took place. And while everyone was going up, she went so far and, and stopped. And, and she looked back, and her foot was tethered to her house. 
and to her car and to her stuff. And when she woke, she realized God was saying, hey, you need to let go of your possessions. They, they're holding too, you're holding too tightly to those things. And so sin literally means this, to miss the mark. Um, that's a real easy way. It's like a dartboard. Uh, you know, if I'm playing darts and the target's this way, I definitely don't want to hit this wall, right? That's how I play darts, okay, just so you know. Um, but it means to miss the mark. I'm aiming this way, but then I totally just blow it. How many have ever just blown it? That's what it happens when we sin. We just, we mess up. Um, and, and I like to say this, this statement, sin is not bad because it is forbidden. It's forbidden because it is bad. God doesn't want you to sin because it is bad for you. Uh, uh, sin is a killer. It is a destroyer of the souls. For the wages of sin is what? Death. Every time. Doesn't matter. Oh, it's just a little sin. Death. It's what, it's what it demands. It's what it asks of us. It's so... Uh, so sin. So and it says this. And so lay aside every weight and sin that, uh, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Um, and one thing that I could say about this spiritual race is this: it is not a sprint. Uh, if you were going to liken our spiritual journey, our spiritual walk, it is more like a marathon. Anybody ever run a marathon in here? All right, my kind of people. Anybody ever run a half? A, oh, you ran a marathon. Half, half marathon, so you've run a half marathon. Anybody else run a half marathon? All right, that, that is amazing. In, 5K, that's where I'm talking about. That's about the best that I did. I've run a couple 5Ks in my life. That's close enough to a marathon as I'll ever get. But it takes endurance to even train for a half marathon, doesn't it? It, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of discipline. I'll, I'll never forget one. <laughs> Tristan was going to run a 5K in Texas, and she had a friend from the church that was going to run this 5K, and it was called the, the Turkey Trot or something. I don't remember. And it was around Thanksgiving. Was it on Thanksgiving Day or maybe the Saturday after? What a terrible time to have a have a, a 5K, you know, after eating Thanksgiving dinner. It's probably the best time, but, it, I mean, terrible. But she asked me, you know, that this young lady that was going to run with her, she couldn't do it because she was sick. I don't know. And Tristan's like, well, I don't want to run this by myself. I need you to run this with me the day of. And I was like, listen, <laughs> whoo, I don't know if I could do this. You know what I did? I was a good husband. I said, okay, babe, I'll do this. And, uh, and honestly, man, I went in with zero training, nothing, you know, got my little shirt, my little turkey trot shirt on, and I'm out there running, and, and I'm giving it my best, and man, sure enough, man, my sides start hurting, come on, yeah, you, how many of you know what I'm talking about, and I just pushed through, because I've got, I've got an iron will, and I, I got to the end of the race, I stayed right there with Tristan the whole time, and, and one thing about me and Tristan is, our, our uh, like, the, my uh, stride is different than her stride, so uh, I have a tendency to go just a little bit faster because I have a little bit longer stride. I got towards the end of the race, and I just left her. <laughs> she hasn't forgiven me since, and uh, I beat her. I beat her. Uh, it, no, I, it, no. and uh, the last little bit of the race, she goes, why did you take off? And I said, I just couldn't handle the, the slow stride that we were going. I was ready to, to go. But, um, but this race, this Christian walk is, li is like that. It's, it's a journey. And uh, we start off usually strong, right? But then life happens and we get a little bit tired. And, Lord, my side hurts. I don't know if I could keep going. And, 
the cool thing about the the 5K that I ran, we, they, we ran through the city streets, and I didn't know what the map was, and but they had people there that were that were like waving at us and saying, "Hey, come this way, turn down this street," and it was like encouragement when we would see those people, and they were cheering us on, and that's that's what the scripture is talking about. So uh, uh, it says this number uh, verse two says this: "Looking to Jesus, everyone say Jesus. He is the founder and perfecter of." Uh, of faith, of our faith. So uh, for if you want a perfect example of what a faith runner looks like, you got to look at Jesus because he started this race here on earth and he completed it, I mean, the best. There's nobody that walked this, this journey of faith better than Jesus. And he is the author and he's the writer. He is the perfecter of this faith journey that we're all on. So, um, you know, I don't know about you, when I want to train or I want to do something, or I, you know, I look at the best possible people uh, that are trainers. If I want to go to the weight room, guess what? I look at people that I want to look like, and I, I see how they're training, right? Come on. And, and so, uh, you know what? If I want to be the best Christian and I want to be the most Christ-like person, guess who I have to look at? I have to focus my eyes on Jesus. Can I just say this? Some people got your eyes on ministries and ministers and people, but can I tell you something, Jesus is the author, and you keep your eyes on Jesus, can I tell you something, people will fail, ministries fail, ministers fail, but Jesus will never fail, amen, it says this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, so uh, the race and course Jesus ran was not an easy one. Matter of fact, he lived a perfect life. None of us are going to be able to do that, okay? Uh, and uh, but, but here's what happened. On the other side of all this pain and suffering, the cross and everything that led up to it, guess what? There, is, there was joy that awaited him. That's amazing. How many like joy? Right? How many like joy? I'm not talking about the soap joy. Right? So all the older people, yeah, yeah, this will sell joy. I don't know if they do or don't. But, you know, here's the thing. Jesus knew, hey, it is going to be worth it in the end. It, it's a struggle. It's a, it's a fight. But can I tell you something? Some of you are maybe in the fight, spiritual fight of your life right now. It will be worth it. Hang in there. Everyone look at your neighbor and say, hang in there. All right. Uh, and I believe the Father, I, I, I can't help but think that the Father up in heaven gave Jesus a sneak peek of this joy while he hung on the cross. I, I'll get, here's my example right here. Remember in Luke chapter 23, verse 42, the thief on the cross said this. He said what? Remember me when you enter your kingdom. Remember me when you enter your kingdom. So I believe the Father there in that moment while Jesus is suffering gave Jesus a taste of the joy. Hey, hey. This guy is a picture of, of all the people that you're, are going to be redeemed by what you are going through. The whole world ha will have an opportunity to follow uh, this thief's example. So here's, if you need another subheading, we're going to this next se se uh, uh, section here is this. Do not grow weary. Everyone say, do not grow weary. Verse 3, consider him who endured the sinner, uh, who, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So what did Jesus endure? The opposition of sinners, people that, that despised him, people that hated him. You know what they did to him? Think about this for a moment. 
they spit on him. I don't know about you, but that is one of the, the, the worst things that somebody can do to you, right? They, they spit on him. Um, they, they, they were mean with their words. They, they cursed at him, right? They beat him with their fists, and they crowned him with thorns. And so here, here's what I need you to understand. In other words, compare what you're going through with that which Jesus endured and went through. Pretty, it's, I mean, honestly, so when I think about, man, well, I'm really not going through so much bad things when I really compare it to what Jesus went through, right? You know, I, I don't have people beating on me. And, and here's a good, this is what you need to do. If you think you've got it really bad, uh, you know, get a piece of paper, draw a line not, down it, write everything that Jesus endured on the cross and in his life, and then write down your little situation. And when you compare the two, Jesus was betrayed by his friends. Uh, Jesus was left, you know, uh, they, his disciples, all but John, abandoned him. John was the only one that made it to the foot of the cross. The rest of them scattered and, and ran. And so, uh, man, when you feel neglected, when you feel lost, when you feel like, man, I, I, I am, I'm in the worst end, just remember Jesus endured and Jesus stuck with it because he loves you. That's amazing. Verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet re, uh, resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So um, how many know that sometimes in our life we, uh, you know, certain situations make us sweat, right? Uh, when We usually sweat when we're striving or working, right? That's what happens. Like if you're doing yard work and it's 90 degrees outside, you're probably sweating, right? If you are at the gym on the treadmill, you're probably sweating. If you're like me, within a minute, right? And you're sweating really, really good and so because you, you're striving, you're working on it. But none of us sweat as much as Christ did in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he, before he went to the cross, knowing what awaited him, you know, uh, in there, Jesus prayed with such intensity uh, that the, uh, Luke tells us that he prayed with such intensity that the capillaries broke at his forehead, causing him to bleed basically out and, and sweat blood. How many know that that is intense stress to be to that place? You know, most of us have been under uh, intense stress at moments in our lives. Maybe it, you know, it may make a panic attack, or a, you can't breathe, or you're you're just you you've cried so much that you can't cry anymore. That it, you're you hurt, right? You've got this this pain in your in your head, and you just you can't give anymore. But Jesus was at this broken place there at the garden. Can you imagine? knowing what he knew, what he was about to face, and he is sitting there struggling. And at, at that moment, had he chosen and said, hey, I don't, I don't want to do this, Father. I, I don't want to do this. He could have he backed out at that moment. But no, 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 that's not Jesus. He's, he's perfect. He is the author and finisher of faith. So, so what, what did he do? He prayed. And he said this, not, not my will be done, but, but thine be done. That takes faith takes faith to say, hey, God, not what I want, but what you want. Not my desire, but what you desire. Not my selfish ambition, but what you want for me. That takes real faith. And he wrestled in his own ability, and he, and he had to choose that day. Perhaps the pain of Gethsemane was in some way 
just a precursor to what the cross was going to feel like because there at that moment he made the decision, I'm going. I'm going. Look at this, verse, verse 5. And, and you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Father, nor be weary when, we, uh, when reproved by him. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. You ought to take heart when the Lord is disciplining you. Instead of being mad at God, you ought to take heart because he loves you. He's, even though he's disciplining you, he loves you. And chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Verse 8. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are uh, illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits uh, of the spirits and live? So what he's doing here, the writer here is quoting Proverbs three, uh, eleven and twelve actually, and it seems that the author is 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 changing metaphors from running a race to disciplining a child. Right? Um, it's kind of a shift there. And the truth is, the best coaches, come on, the best coaches do what? They discipline their athletes. Right? A good coach. If a kid is out of line, they discipline them, right? Because if a kid's not going to do something at practice, guess what? They're not going to do it in the game. Or if they're not going to run like they're supposed to, uh, uh, you know, in practice, they're not going to run like they need to when the time comes. And the truth is, uh, you know, coaches, they'll pull the best out of their players. They, they bring them over and they correct them. And I'll never forget when I played football, I had several coaches who poured into me when I would make a mistake, you know, sometimes I'd be down on myself and they would grab me, uh, you know, by my ear holes on my helmet and pull me in. And they'd be like, hey, get it together, Skiles. You, you know what you need to do. Why are you doing this? You know, you need to adjust your step. Do this. I believe you go out there and do something amazing. I'll never forget my, my senior year. And we were uh, losing a, a football game. Pretty practical when I, my senior year, but uh, uh, but I remember I was on the hands team, and so and when they kicked the ball off, I was on the very far edge, and we were doing an onside kick because we were trying to get the ball back because we had just scored and and just trying to fight to stay in the game. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget, we we did this onside kick, and I went down the sideline, and I was on the very far edge. I was fast, and I caught the ball literally and got the ball back, and every the whole place erupted it was amazing the whole stadium on our side erupted it was amazing and I'll never forget the lineman coach who I knew but I didn't know really really well picked me up like one hand because he was a big old dude probably you know 330 pounds picked me up like this because I weighed all but like 110 pounds as my senior year and by my shirt and literally picked me up and goes boom and head bunts me with my helmet on and I thought there's something wrong with this guy you know linemen they're a whole different group but but he was Pulling the best out in me, you know, trying to get me to do the best that I can, telling me, hey, I, I've got you. But coaches confront, they challenge, and a good parent will confront and, and challenge their kids because you know why we do that? You know why we correct our kids? Because we want to see them succeed. Not because we're mean. We want to see them excel. We want to see them do 
do greater things than we have done. We want to see them do, not make the same mistakes that we have made. Even though they say, well, mom and dad, they don't know nothing. And blah, 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 blah. You know what? My mom and dad know way more than I ever, have ever thought that they did. They're getting smarter and smarter the older and older I get. But look at this. Wait a minute. You say, well, what about the first 11 chapters of Hebrew? What about God is God talking about? I don't remember their sins. But, but here he's, he's disciplining. He's, he's correcting. Uh, in, in chapter 12, though, I'll give you two things I want you to consider here concerning the Lord's discipline. Number one is this. God's punishment is never punitive but corrective. God's punishment is never punitive but corrective. People who went to the temple, I'll give you a good example, went and before they could come into the temple, they were met by the priest. And if they had their oxen, they were going to come in and sacrifice. The priest would come in and go, well, let me see that oxen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just make sure it's good. Oh, you know what? There's a spot right here under its ear. You can't use that oxen. So um, this is what's going to have to happen. It's, you know what? But we've got you squared away here at the temple because guess what? We have some good oxen over here that you can. But here, for the price of blah, 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 you can buy one of these oxen. But, oh, you don't have, oh, you're from a different different area. You don't have money. Oh, guess what? We have an exchange rate, the temple currency here. But for a nominal fee, hey, we'll give you, we'll give you uh, temple currency so you can buy this oxen so you can have your sins. Remember, what did Jesus do in John chapter 2? He comes in. And on the scene, and he rips the whole temple because they're making a mockery uh, of what God is doing. God is saying, hey, this is not right. What you guys are trying to do here, hey, you." he grabs the whip. He overthrows the money changers. He's upset at what they're doing. Hey, my house shall be called a house of what? Prayer. And he, he throws them out of there. So so too our hearts and our bodies uh, are, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God looks at our heart and says, hey, what is inside of you? That needs to be overthrown and taken out. What selfish ambition do you have in you? What negativity do you have in you? Come on, somebody. What bitter root do you have in you that needs to be taken out? I need to get this out of you. So uh, thus the Lord has, has every right to come into our life, man, when we surrender to him and drive out the things that are not worthy of his name. Come on, right? Oh, that's, that's, that's good. And, and, and things that hinder us from fully knowing him and things that pollute our temples. So his goal is this. It's not punitive. It's not punitive. It's not to, to, to you know, like, hey, you got to do nine years of, of prison, you know, or you got to do that. No, no, it's, hey, there's a repentance. There's a correctiveness. There's a, I need to get this right. I need to get this thing out of my life. Here's a second reason right here. God's uh, correction is, is never confrontational but, but consequential. I know those are big words. I'll break it down for you. Uh, but God has, has forgiven uh, you all your sins. How many believe that? So scripture tells us, right? He's forgiven us all of our sins. And, and here's the thing. Uh, God doesn't confront our sins. What? Wait, wait a minute, Pastor. I don't know about that. Well, let's look at this. Numbers 32, 23 tells us to be sure your, your sins will what? Your sins will what? Find you out. What will find you out? Your, oh, right? Your sins will find you out. And notice God's not finding you out, but your sin. Okay, principle of the Lord right here. You've heard me talk about this. You reap what you, you reap what you, you plant corn, you're getting, 
right? You plant grapes, you're getting, okay. You reap, you, you plant sin, you're going to reap sin. You plant righteousness, you're going to reap righteousness. That, that is a principle that God does not bend on in Scripture. Ever, 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 ever. Now, he'll forgive your sins, right? Uh, and, and God's not, not, not looking for our sins to punish us. No, no, no. Uh, uh, it, but, but what happens is our sins track us down. Galatians 6, 7 says this. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Here's a good question. How many sins have repercussions? Come on, say it. All of them. Every one of them has a repercussion. So how do I know? Because Jeremiah 2, uh, uh, Israel was getting into all kinds of sin. And, and Jeremiah 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 19 says, your own wickedness. This is Jeremiah talking to Israel. Your own wickedness. Catch that. Your own wickedness will correct you is what Jeremiah is telling Israel. Your own wickedness will correct you and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know, therefore, and see it that it is an evil and bitter thing. Everyone say bitter thing. That you have forsaken the Lord your God and the fear, and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. So that, that, that scripture tells us your own wickedness will catch up to you. Your sin, the consequences of your own sin. You know, a good example of that was this. How many know that David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, God forgave him? Right? He sinned with Bathsheba. He killed Uriah. God forgave him, right? The prophet uh, Nathan came in and, and, and called him out, right? And, and he, Psalms 51, it's a beautiful bit of scripture, and he, he's crying out to the Lord. But what happened to David's family? Come on. What happened to David's family after God had forgiven him? Man, it went to shambles. He married Bathsheba. He, he lost his child, right? He lost the child that he was going to have with her. And, 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 man, one child, one of his kids raped one of his, his daughters, and it was a big old mess. And then this big old family drama and all this stuff. So you reap what you It's the way it works. Oh, the work of forgiveness is, is complete with Jesus and, and finished. But sin itself is scourging. It's scourging. The, the prodigal son, uh, you know, the father, he didn't send the, the, uh, the police after his son. He didn't, he didn't put him in the pig pen. I think the father, oh, it's a beautiful picture of who, who God is, sit there and goes, ah, I know what will drive him back, his own sin. Because he's going to get to a place where it's like, I can be better than this. Sins are forgiven, but, but we reap what we sow. I, I can be forgiven by God for murdering someone, but that doesn't mean that I won't go to prison. Right? That's just, that's just the way it works. So, you know, ask David, ask Moses, ask Abraham, ask Cain. There's scars that sin causes. And you know what I love about, you know, uh, Thomas in the Bible and Jesus, when he sees Jesus and he, he has that unbelief. And 
God and Jesus says, hey, hey, look, look, look here. Put your put your hand here. Look, look where what I see, uh, you know, and, and some of you have been have been scarred permanently by sin. And I, and I hate that. And that's a terrible thing. And you can look at your life and say, I, I've been scarred by sin. This is this is such an ugly thing. But but let me tell you something. What what's great about those scars is you can look at those scars and go, hey, God has forgiven me of this, and listen, I can, I, God can use me, uh, and God can use this scar, God could use this broken thing in my life, it was a terrible time, but guess what, there's somebody that's going to be going through the same thing that I can pour into and say, hey, I made it through, I made it through, God's grace is there. How many know that God will use your scars as a testimony? Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed Best, uh, best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. So speaking of earthly fathers here, sometimes they correct us uh, to keep their, their children from embarrassing them, right? Have you ever been in a store? Have you ever been in a restaurant with your kids and they're acting a fool and you go, do not make me embarrass you. You are embarrassing me in the store. Come on. Who's being real? Come on. Some of you, you grit your teeth, you grab them by the shoulder and you, you right? Do not embarrass me in this store right now. There are people that go to our church in this store right now, right? No father wants to be embarrassed by by their child, but God doesn't correct us to keep us from embarrassing him. The reason the Lord corrects us is to let us endure trials uh, and and help us get through them. So so the next part of that verse says this, that that we may share his holiness. You ought to to circle that, that that we ought to share that we may share his, you know, God wants to share his holiness with us. What does that mean? To be set apart. Every correction from the Lord is not because he's embarrassed by us, but simply because he wants the best for you. Oh, you know what? That makes me look at God's correction a whole different way. God, fix me. I need it. God, Change my mindset. God, change my bad attitude. God, help me to shut my trap. God, help me to love people like you love people. God, help me. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Uh, uh, so uh, every correction from the Lord is not because he's embarrassed, but he simply he, he wants the best for us. So he's saying uh, there is a better way. Uh, when we walk in holiness, it pleases the Lord. And when we please the Lord, guess what? We get closer to him and closer to him and closer to him. How many want to get closer to the Lord? I do. Oh, you know what? There's a guy in the Old Testament named Enoch. Man, and he was so righteous. One day God's like, you know what? Why don't you just come on up here with me? That's awesome. I want to be like that. I got a long ways to go. Man, I got a long ways to go. But because of his holiness, because of his righteous attitude, God's just like, why don't you just come on up here with me? I like being around you. Holiness means to be set apart. Set apart for his good and for his purpose. Different than the world. I don't talk like the world. I don't watch the same things the world watches. I don't act a fool like the world acts. I don't. <laughs> we're, we're pilgrims in this land, right? We're, we're going from one place to the next. Hey, I'm not of this world. I'm going to heaven. I'm going, I'm going elsewhere. Hey, I'm, cro- I'm coming through here. I like you. I love you. But guess what? I'm not part of it. I'm going somewhere. And with every trial, God is fashioning us to be a holy people. 
Oh, that we would understand that. Man, when you're struggling, man, you feel the fire in your life, and you're saying, man, I am struggling with this trial. God is trying to burn something out of you and to make you purer than, than before. Amen. Verse 11, for the, mo- uh, for the moment, all discipline seems painful. Every time I got a spanking growing up, it always seemed painful in the moment. Come on, how many know what I'm talking about? <laughs> for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruits of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So uh, never once when I was growing up, uh, when I was young, and I, my parents would discipline me, did I say, boy, I really enjoyed that, Mom and Dad. Can I have another few swats? Would, you know, can you go ahead and just give me? No, if I'd have said that, I'd have, I'd, have, I'd have unleashed a fury on top of me, right? But I knew better than to say it. But, but here's what happens. When discipline happens to us, it often hurts. It makes us want to cry. It makes us vulnerable. But you know what? My parents, they, they disciplined me to change a course, to change my bad behavior, to change my big mouth that was bigger than my tail, to change my smart mouth and my quick wit to, hey, I, we want you to be a good person. We want you to be a respectful person. We want you to be able to talk to people in love and not where everyone's like, boy, that is just a smart aleck person. I do not like to be around that person, right? While correction often hurts in the moment, there's a purpose for it. There's a growth to it. And God is doing in you. Amen. How many believe that? And I look back at some of the moments where my parents corrected me. And now that I'm older and I've matured and grown, I look back and I, I look at where my actions and I go, I deserved every bit of that. Right? And as you grow and you get a little bit, you get away from it a little bit. It hurt at the moment, but you get a little away from it, a little distance. You're like, yeah, mom and dad, you were right on on that one. All right, verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that uh, what is lame may not be uh, put out of joint but rather be healed. So this is, this is super encouraging. This is an exhortation to you and me. Hey, you've been corrected. Yeah, yeah, I know you're struggling. You, you feel like you're injured. You feel like you're sidelined by sin. But God, everyone say, but God. The Father, hey, he'll come in. He'll heal you. He'll make a way. He'll put your feet on a path. I've corrected. He'll wipe your tears away. He'll, he'll get you back into the race, right? He'll pick you back up and say, it's going to be all right, little TJ. Come on. You got this, right? Hey, you got this. So uh, often after correction, you know, my parents were, would do this. Um, you know, I've told you the story where my mom took me out of church when I was little, and she, you know, spanked me. And, and, I, and she said, my parents were really good about explaining why they, <laughs> you know, would spank me. And, and they said, my mom said, do you know why I spanked you? And I looked at her, and I said, because you're a mean woman, right? And I got, I got spanking number two right, right then in that moment. But, but my parents, after they would, they would spank me, I, I remember, you know, times where, you know, usually they would give a little, little time, but then later I would come in out of my room. <laughs> And there would be my mom, and there would be my dad with open arms going, come here. And they would just impute into me their love on me and just say, hey, it's going to be all right. It's, it's going to be better. It's going to be better. Verse 14 says this, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with, without which no one will see the Lord. So the King James Version says, uh, follow instead of strive. And, and the word strive fits better to the original Greek word. And, and it literally means this, to pursue. Everyone say pursue. 
pursue for peace with everyone. As, as you know, you can read it that way. And this word pursue gives insight into the race we run. And uh, an, uh, an athlete always pursues something, right? A goal, first place, finish the race, whatever. I've, I'm, 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 a, I'm a trying to achieve things. Maybe you're trying to uh, achieve health, wealth, and fame. I don't know. Maybe that's the prize. But our, our prize is far greater prize because as believers, our prize, guess what? When we're running this race, you know what it is? According to scripture, peace. Everyone say peace. How many want peace in your life? Walk in wholeness. Let the Lord discipline you. As you're going along, I'm struggling right now. God's like, I'm going to give you peace in the middle of this. Woo, I feel pretty good all of a sudden, right? All right, verse 15. See that, that uh, no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no, all right, you ready for this? That no what? Read it again. That no springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled. Root of bitterness, all right. So if you're following the flow of this scripture, it's easy to uh, uh, fail to uh, obtain the, uh, the grace of God like at, at moments. Why? Because we oftentimes get bitter when God is trying to change something uh, with us, right? They're like, like, I'm mad at you, God, because God's trying to work something out. But, but God, what? He disciplines those he loves, right? It's good. Uh, and remember this, we have this cloud of witness who are cheering us on. Go, go, go. Jesus is the author. And the, he's the, our example. Yeah, I'm, I'm following him. I got this. I got this. Uh, laying aside every weight. Everything's going great. It, it's slowing me down, dropping sins that are tripping me up. And God is disciplining us. And, and you know, and then all, out of nowhere, he's like, be careful for bitterness. Why? Because after we've been disciplined, hey, we're vulnerable to bitterness towards those who enjoy God's grace. I'll give you a good example. Um, you know, you may say this, how come they're getting away with that and I didn't get away with that? How come they got the job and I didn't get the job? How come pastor asked them to do that and not me? Right? Why? Because I'm selfish. Right? Our nature, hey, that's, that's us. That's what we do. And Jesus knew this would happen because he, gives, he illustrates it in Matthew chapter 20. He tells the story of a, a vineyard owner, and he hired workers early in the morning, right? And then he, throughout the day, he's like, man, I need more workers. And then he hires more at noon, and then he hires more at 3 p.m., then he hires some at, at 5 p.m., like an hour before the day ends. And at the end of the day, the owner of the vineyard, he gave uh, those that were hired at the end of the day a full day's wage. And all the guys at the beginning of the day were like, "Woo, I get a full wage. You know, man, if they got that, man, we're going to get paid today. And when he come around to them, he gave them a full day wage, and they were like, What's up with this? How come the people that only worked an hour get this? And how come I'm not getting this? Oh, well, life's not always fair, right? But here's what happens, you know, and, and we say, oh, that's not fair, Lord. I've been serving you for years. And this person just got saved and went through growth tracks, and now they're, they're running a ministry. Selfish. Bitterness. Because God's grace, rather than being excited because God's grace did something in somebody's life, you're self-centered, me, 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 me. Why do we get upset? Because, you know, someone is, you know, think about that. Think about this question. Why do we get upset because someone else is a recipient of God's grace? Why, why do we do that? Why do they get that? Why, why is God being so good to them? 
something going on in us. Like the prodigal son's uh, brother who, who grew angry and he grew bitter at his younger brother and his father. He said, why, why is he receiving grace and mercy? I stayed here the whole time. I'm the better son. I never left, right? The root of bitterness is far more deadly than it, than it appears, right? So look at this, verse 16. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So remember, we're following the flow here. Here we get to Esau, who he is mentioned here in, in, uh, as a biblical example of bitterness or a root of bitterness. So why did Esau sell his birthright? You know why? Esau, Esau, Jacob, how many, now come on, where's my Sunday school teacher at? Why did, why did Esau sell his birthright? Because he was what? Oh, here's, here's, the, here's the deal. His flesh. His flesh. I'm hungry, I want it right now. My flesh. I'm selfish, I want it right now. I need it right now. It's amazing. See, Esau, his, his, his birthright, man, it would have given him the spiritual leadership of his family. We wouldn't be talking about Jacob. We'd be talking about Esau, okay? And, and it would have doubled his portion financially. Woo, praise the Lord, right? No, 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 no. I, I'm going to give it up for a, a bowl of stew because I'm hungry right now in this moment. Could it be, all right, check this out. Could it be that Esau was bitter over the fact that before he was born, God said that the, that the elder shall serve the younger. God had already designed this. And, and could it be that in his heart he was already struggling because, you know, Jacob was the favorite mama's boy and mama loved him and, you know, he, he had smooth skin and Esau was hairy, right? And, I mean, and so he was like a goat almost, right? And, and, but, but, you know, most of us think, well, he probably thought, man, this is not fair because uh, uh, of one moment here, uh, he lets his, his flesh rule him. He's hungry, and he smelled that bowl of stew, and he's like, man, give me that bowl of stew, and I'll, 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 I'll give you my birthright. It's, it's a real fair deal, right? And I think this is a warning to all of us. Listen, I think this is a warning to all of us. You just look at Esau to walk not in the flesh but in holiness to the Lord. Amen? Amen? Where I mean, I hey, hey, listen. Your flesh, oh, your flesh. Ah, it's just a moment. It's just, a, it's just a, it's just a short time. We'll swap these. It's just a short time. It's, it's just uh, this little thing. Your flesh wants it, right? God's saying, oh, I've got something better. Romans seven eighteen. Paul says it like this: For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but the inability to carry it out. That's. Paul knew his flesh. Hey, I, I've got, I want what I want to do, I don't do. What I shouldn't do, I do do. Right? How do I, how do I beat the flesh? And then Paul answers it in Galatians right here, 516. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. One of the biggest enemies that you have as a believer, and I know we all think the devil's beating down our door, but our flesh is one of the hardest things for us to get under subjection. Amen? So Jesus said in Matthew 19.30 that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, right? How many know that? The, the big flip, the Lord always does the big flip. Could it be that Esau had a chance to be greater than Jacob in the eternal economy, but if he had just accepted the fact that God had put him where he had put him, 
but per, but per, perhaps he knew this and he was bitter about it. All right. Everyone say, don't be bitter. And this is what is happening today. People say, well, why should I why should I live a godly uh, uh, life if those guys who aren't living a godly life, they're getting blessed anyways? Why should I do that? Why should I why should I attend church? Why should I do those things? Why not just live a life of compromise like everyone else? And like Esau, their lives become a mess because of bitterness. Verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So this intrigues me. Esau, uh, you know, man, he was an interesting character. He was a, a party animal who initially tossed away his birthright without uh, a second thought. He gave it all away for a bowl of stew, a moment of gratification. And so do uh, so many people. They abandon their faith for a moment of gratification. Right? Oh, people do it all the time. Well, I never meant to take this, you know, I thought it was just casual flirting and then for a moment of gratification. Now my life's in shambles. My, my marriage is busted up. My family's broken. I made a terrible decision. Oh, listen, if you guys knew all some of the, some of the things that are said in my office at times, I did something so stupid. Why did I do that? I don't even know why I did it. I know why. Because one day you decided to think of a thought. And then you let it build. And you let it build. And then that thought became an action. And one moment of gratification, like Esau. Here it is. I, I, was, I gave it. I lost it. Every son and daughter, here, here's the thing, we crave the blessing of the father. And that's what Esau, he, he was. He's craving that moment, I want to be blessed by my father. And, and, and think with me for a moment, just as Esau wanted the blessing later, uh, he forfeited his birthright. So too, we want God's blessing without, uh, you know, without being born again. A lot of people's like, I want God's blessing. Well, you must be what? Born again is what scripture tells us. Listen, you got to be obedient to what God wants you. You want God's blessing flow in your life? Be obedient to him. He'll bless your socks off. We like the blessing, Psalm 37, 25. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging for bread. Did you catch that? The righteous forsaken, Psalm 34, 7. The Lord delivers those who fear him, Psalms 37, 24. The Lord upholds, holds, up, upholds those that fall. We want the blessing without the birthright, without the obedience, right? And when we despise the birthright, when we despise being born again, we don't see the need to, to submit and, and come under what Christ is doing. And, and, and remember, uh, the book of Hebrews here is written for people who, who wanted the blessing and they were una unable to receive it because they thought they could do it with works. They thought, I can do this with traditions. I can do this with, with all these old things. But it... And, and the writer is this, it's not your traditions, it's not your old past, it's not things that you do, it's relationship. You must be born again is what Jesus said. Here's the third heading right here, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I'll, I'll try to fly through this as fast as I can. All right, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness, gloom and tempest, 19, and the sound of the trumpet and the voice whose words made uh, the hearers beg that no further message he spoken to them. Verse 24, they could not endure the 
order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, 21. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So um, this, is the, this is talking about when God gave uh, the law, the Ten Commandments to Moses on, on Mount Sinai. How many know that the law, honestly, is, is awesome? Like it made the mountain quake. It, it, I mean, there were some great things. The mountain began to shake and quake, and, and there's great power, and there's great possibility. But here's the problem with the law. Uh, uh, though the law is powerful, and though it is great, the problem is this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law points out our flaws. It is a schoolmaster. It is a mirror. When I look into the Ten Commandments, I have failed many, many, many times. And the problem is there, all the blessings connected to the, to the law, it is, it is impossible to touch. So Mount Sinai shows the law's power. But look, look, there's another mountain I want to talk about. The Mount, Mount Zion or Calvary through Christ's blood. All of that came uh, to receive and believe. And the contrast here is this. The, the two mountains show that we need a Savior. The law tells me I need a Savior. And when I see Mount Calvary and I see the spotless lamb and I see Jesus Christ, the propitiation for my sin, he made the way when there was no other way. The Hebrew writer here and, and the Hebrew reader who would read this would look at that and go, That's powerful. Look at this verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels and, and festal gathering. Verse 23. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of righteousness made perfect. Verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Everyone say new covenant. Here's the thing. Like Esau, man, you can, you can try to gain the blessing of God with tears and futility by trying to keep the law given at Mount Sinai. Listen, you ought to try to do your best to live uh, and follow the Ten Commandments. That doesn't mean that you should be breaking the Ten Commandments. Or you can simply go to Mount Zion and say, hey, God, here I am. I surrender my life to you. God, I give you completely all my life. God, I'm, I know I'm a sinner. God, I know I need your grace. God, I know I need your mercy. Time and time and time and time again. It's called the new covenant. Listen, it's not based on works. It's based on a relationship with God. It's a beautiful thing. Look at this. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, we, it, it says that Cain killed Abel, and that Abel's blood cried out for justice and judgment and revenge, right? How many remember reading that? And his blood's crying out, hey, there needs to be justice. There needs to be judgment. There needs to be revenge. You know what Jesus' blood cries out for? Not justice, but mercy. Not judgment, but forgiveness. Not revenge, but grace. It's called the new covenant. Man, when the world's like, man, we need justice. We need this. We need all. Listen, I, God is a just God, but God is a God of mercy. God is a God of forgiveness, and God is a God of grace. And I don't know about you, when I think about God's goodness, and I think about God's grace, and I think about God's mercy on my life, I can't help but just be enamored by how much he loves me. Thus, the blood of Jesus makes, makes the birthright a blessing available to you and me. Verse 25, I'm going to get through this, I promise. See that you do not refuse who, uh, who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him, 
who warned them on earth, much less uh, will we escape. And if we reject him who warns uh, from heaven, verse 26, at, the, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Verse 27, this phrase, yet once more, indicates that the removal of things that are shaken, that is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So I'll give you a good example of this. In, in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, this is King Uzziah. This, the beginning of that uh, chapter says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Look at the sequence here. King Uzziah, who is that? He was a great king of Judah, was a great guy. You know what happened under him? The economy boomed. The money flowed. The, the border expanded. The, 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 everything was great. Everything was greatly protected. It was a powerful time. People become, became complacent. Matter of fact, the scripture tells us he was such a powerful king that the Babylonians in the north talked about him. They had him on their mouth, and the Egyptians of the south talked about him. They said he was a great guy. But when, uh, when, when did Isaiah see the Lord? When King Uzziah died. Let me ask you this. So what is the Uzziahs in your life? Maybe they're not sins. Maybe they're, they're good things or wonderful things. What, what, but things in which we put our hope and our trust and our dependency on instead of trusting God. Our jobs. Our spouse. Our home. own smarts and our own good looks. Is that a Uzziah that's inside of you? You want what's best? Sometimes you got to, you got to, you want what's good or do you want what's best? God always wants what's best for you. And as secure as, as things were with Uzziah and it might feel, but listen, they will not hold up in time. Just as prone as we are to put our hope and our trust in things that, that are not trustworthy, God often shakes us. He shakes us, and he, and he lets us go through tribulations. You know what happens? And I should have brought a kid in here. I could have brought my own kid in here and did this. It reminds me of, like, when, you know, the bully would grab a kid, and, and he's like, give me your lunch money. Give your, and he would turn him upside down, and he would shake him, right? And, and all his lunch money would come out. There's a shaking. And anything that's not attached to that kid comes out, right? And that's what happens to us in our life. Sometimes God turns us upside down. He's like, you got to get this thing out of your life. It's not good. And you know what? God is so good to us he, that he, he does this enough. And year after year, you, you, you know, some of you lean on your spouse and you lean on your job or you, you depend on your bank account. Come on, somebody, right? And, and, and here's what happens. When you do that, you'll be spiritually weak and inept. But God says, ah, well, I've got greater things for you. I've got better things for you. So oftentimes he shakes us to remove our dependency on things. Lean on Jesus. Come on, right? Look to Jesus. Walk to him, and you'll be blessed, strengthened. I promise I'm almost done. Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Ha, ha, ha. Did you catch that? After the, God's kingdom cannot be shaken. It, it's immovable. It's, it's powerful. Listen, there's no, that, that tells me that there's no devil in hell. There's no force of hell that can come against God's, hey, the gates of hell will not prevail. Come on, the kingdom of God will stand. It will not be shaken. It is a sure thing. The only things that remain in our life after shaking is the things that need to be there. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with, with reverence and awe. So the author addresses the Jewish believers who had 
a tendency to lean to their traditions and their priests and their sacrifice. Yet the author never misses a moment to draw their attention back to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's where, that's what you need to be worshiping. That's what you need to be pointing at. Hey, look, the cross. Look, the new covenant. Look, God's grace. Worship at its core is simple and pure. It's a heart that says, I love God more than I love idols. I love God more than I love sin. I love God more than anything I want. God, I love you. It's pure. Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Everyone say fire. My pastor friend, Russell Hilton, said, said this this week. God don't need any matches. He's a fire himself. I like that. Not only does God shake us out of things that, that don't need to be there, but he, he draws us close to him. And here's what happens. He is a fire, as we get closer to him, he is a fire that consumes our own selfish ambition and our own pride, right? And our arrogance, Oh, come on. And what happens is, you know what you do with precious metal? You put it in the fire, and all the impurities begin to break off of it. And then they take and they make a beautiful ring, right? And then it's a pure ring. And what happens is all the impurities of life, whether sin, weights, whatever, hey, as we get closer to God, they burn off of us. Come on, somebody, right? And then we come out, and, and there's a holiness to us, and our hearts, and our, and our ambitions, and everything is focused towards him.